Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of Season 2 of The Shed Wireless. Coming up... He loves yous all. One of the toughest men who ever walked is only here in 2020 because he has a piece of pig inserted in his chest. You'll hear the whole story with one of the greatest boxers of all time, Jeff Fennick, when he joins us on the Shed Wireless. Throw another rue tail on the barbie and dress light because we're heading to a warm Catherine Men's Shed in the Northern Territory. Is there anything worse than waiting for a medical result when you're afraid of the outcome? Rip and Stuart both give their takes on that particular type of stress. What is poor mental health and what is just a crappy day? We'll ask the doc all that and much more ahead in this episode of The Shed Wireless. Hello, I'm Aaron Carney and we are joined by the chairman of the Australian Men's Shed Association, Paul Sladden. Hello, sir. How are you today? I am great. Any dispatches from HQ to get us underway today? Certainly, Aaron. We're, um, we've come to the end of uh, National Men's Sheds Week, uh, which was... Certainly very different this year, given the um, all the COVID restrictions, etc. But um, we got through it uh, quite well, and uh, those sheds that were able to celebrate with their mates uh, certainly did so. So uh, that went off very well. The other piece of news that our shedders will be interested in is the round 21 of the um, National Shed Development Program will open on the 19th of October and close on the, I think it's the 27th of November. But all details will be on the uh, AMSA website uh, from the 19th of October and uh, Shedders will be notified. This episode includes quite a few subjects that you've had personal experience of, but let's start with Jeff Fennick memories. I mentioned in my chat with him that I have a very fond memory of three generations of my family, my grandfather, my dad and I going to Katoomba RSL from memory and sitting in front of the TV and watching some of his epic battles. Do you remember Jeff Fennick in action? I certainly do. Um, I mean, who could forget his ongoing battle with Azuma Nelson? I think they had a, uh, over quite a few years, they had an ongoing, um, well, literal fight. Uh, no, Jeff uh, came out on top. One of the few to uh, win three world titles uh, across three different weight divisions. And yeah, my older brother, Bob, he's a mad boxing fan. And um, Although I haven't uh, personally gone down in the old days, he used to love going to uh, Festival Hall in uh, in Melbourne, which was the venue for for the fights uh, here in Victoria. But um, yes, no, Jeff and his um, three world titles and and his lovely quotes as well. <laughs> yes, he certainly has <laughs> entered into the vernacular. It was interesting when I mentioned to you the subjects that we were going to be tackling in this episode, how close to home a few of them are for you. Well, the first one is, of course, the idea between normal, healthy levels of sadness or grief and then where that crosses into the line of... I'm hesitant to use the word depression, but something that is 
unhealthy mentally. And I know you've spoken regarding the loss of your beautiful wife about how you had to monitor that line pretty closely for a while, didn't you? Well, it's an ongoing battle, uh, Aaron. It's um, I'm still monitoring it. And yeah, look, uh, obviously a significant event like that um, really takes the, uh, the stuffing out of you. But being aware of it, be, uh, monitoring it, um, uh, look, recently um, I went through a bout of I would say a sad couple of weeks. I wouldn't say a depressing couple of weeks, but, um, you know, just with COVID and everything else that's going on at the moment, um, it can build up. But if you are aware of it, uh, talk to your GP. I've got a great relationship with my local GP. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm on medication and have been since uh, about a month after my my wife passed. I thought, this is nonsense. I can't do it on my own. So in addition to uh, counselling, I um, I have... Uh, it's not so regular now, but I still have three monthly checkups with a grief counsellor. Um, but I am on medication. I'm on it's uh, it's an anti-anxiety uh, tablet that I take one a day. So that certainly you know takes the edge off, but that does it. It's not a cure, and I won't be on it forever. Um, but it does just help me uh, focus and uh, try and maintain some equilibrium between you know what is a, a crap day and. Uh, and other days where it, it can get uh, a bit more overpowering. You don't have to have a sad event in order to have a crappy day. As I say, COVID is a global sad event that gets you down from time to time. I was just looking on social media five minutes ago and somebody was saying they were having a day where they're struggling to get off the canvas, you know, find something to look forward to. So that's one version of it. The second version of it is when you do have a really sad or bad event as we go on to talk about later in this episode, you're an idiot if you don't have a sadness response to that. That's the natural thing to do. And in fact, I think we tell ourselves a huge lie to say that you'll never feel sad or you'll never feel down. That's not living. That's part of life. But then the third version is there is no actual correlation between what's going on in your life and how sad you are. Correct. Correct. And look, there's certainly um, nothing wrong with um dwelling um, on those sad days and um, yeah look take the moment to um, try and look at the reasons behind it and um, but yeah but don't try and put it away because it is as you say it's part of our human makeup and um, just make sure that you uh, do something to address it whether it's something as simple as you know getting out in the garden and going for a walk or having a chat to somebody um, go to Go to your GP. That's what they're there for. Yeah. Yep. yep. And make use of the shed network as well. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. So yep. then the other thing, you're like our walking test case for this episode, is that feeling when you've gone in for a test. Again, I was talking to a relative recently who had it for a prostate test and he was really panicked about what it was going to mean and he was running all the horror scenarios and blah 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 again it's natural to have anxiety around a potentially bad result but also it's something that you've got to manage because we'll all deal with it at some point yes uh sorry aaron i, I thought you were going to ask me about my three world championships but <laughs> Uh, but I digress. I digress. There's a court suppression on your ongoing fight with the Ghanaian from up the road. So, 
Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. No, come on, this is serious. Um, it's very serious. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I've uh, recently had that <laughs> that experience where I had to go into hospital and uh, have a piece of my uh, bowel removed that was sent away for analysis. And at the same time, just to really top things off, I had a colonoscopy. So here I am waiting for the results of the colonoscopy and the assessment of the bit of bowel that they uh, took out of me. And so I had to wait until those results come back, and that was fairly uh, tense. Um, but thankfully, all is okay. So uh, no polyps, no tumours, no cancer. That was very, very relieving. But as you say, uh, that period of time, had that test, I'm waiting for the results, um, uh, can be quite distressing. But look, the doctors, again, uh, they were very good in terms of explaining the consequences. You know, if it's this, this is what we can do. If it's that, this is what we can do. Um, so weighing up all those options, um, not trying to second guess what's going to happen. Don't think about the worst uh, but, and, uh, and wait until the, the result. It's easy to say now, I suppose, after the event, but um, just you know, don't work yourself up about something that may never happen. Yeah. And I don't know whether you do have any experience of this. Have you ever been to Catherine or the Northern Territory more generally? Oh, I've certainly been to the Northern Territory and um, I've certainly done uh, Darwin and the Litchfield uh, National Park. Oh, how good is Litchfield? Oh, Litchfield's just magnificent, magnificent. But unfortunately, no, didn't get down to Catherine. Um, so I haven't been to the Catherine uh, shed, but I've certainly had kangaroo. In fact, I had a kangaroo um, not long ago. Nice piece of um, roux, little stir-fry I did. It wasn't tail, though, I assume. No, no, no. But in the early days, I, I can tell you that we used to di- um, have kangaroo tail soup. Um, I'm, I'm one of ten kids, so um, we had to uh, eat what we were given. So the kangaroo, <laughs> kangaroo tail soup was very nice. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron. And now it's considered a prime meat. Unbelievable. The prices of it. It's ridiculous. Isn't it expensive? You know? Yeah. yeah. It's like $7 to buy a rabbit, for heaven's sake. <laughs> I mean, there's no way known you'd do that nowadays. That, re- that reminds me, we've got pet rabbits. Oh. Whoops. <laughs> which I realise are illegal in uh, some parts where we're listened to, but we have legitimate pet rabbits. And because it's spring and uh, oh. it's two girls, so they're not getting any action at the moment, they're a bit grumpy. And I, I looked one of them in the eye yesterday and said, rabbits are only good for two things, either cuddles or pie, and you're not doing enough cuddling. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. All right, let's get on with the show. Staying strong. Staying sharp. And staying healthy with The Shed Wireless. A few weeks ago, I had some tests done on a Friday morning. The people who did them for me said they'll be with my doctor on the Saturday. I didn't expect her to work on the Saturday, so I wasn't fretting exactly, but I was very enthusiastic to get the results. And I remember thinking about some of the old tests that could happen that would take three months to come through and how people must have absolutely lost their mind with stress and worry, especially if it might be a life or death result. Turns out four days later, I still hadn't heard anything. So I rang my doctor and was told the scans are all clear. No worries. No action required, I think was what the receptionist said. 
but it got me thinking about the stress of medical worries and how that can be something that perhaps our mates at the shed can be aware of and provide some support on. AMSA Project Officer Stuart Torrance joins us. Hello, Stuart. How are we going, Aaron? Fine, thank you. Have you had a similar experience? Oh, mate, uh, I've I've had uh, a few of my own um, just... Wait, waiting for that result to come through, you you start to sort of overthink it. And yeah, you might jump on Doctor Google <laughs> and um, and give yourself even more worry. <laughs> if we have learned nothing else from our Ask the Doctor segment, it is Doctor Google is not your friend. Now it's fair to say that not every doctor on Doctor Google is equally good or bad. There are some good places you can go and some bad places, but rarely does any good come from Dr. Google. We we do have on the Spanner uh, website um, Health Check that runs uh, through the Department of Health. It's called Symptom Checker. So you can put in your symptoms. But what it does is if it starts to get serious, it automatically defaults to go and see a doctor. Yeah. I put in tickly throat the other day just to see what would happen. I, I don't have one. So I, I just put it in and uh, symptom checker uh, asked me a few extra questions that I answered. And next thing, the pop-up came, go and see your doctor and go and get a COVID test. I bet that's been updated in the last six or eight months. Last year, a tickly throat wouldn't have uh, drawn the same response probably. Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't have registered. But the fact that this uh, whole system is, is set up to basically take you to the, to the area you need. Whereas Dr. Google, you're throwing a wide net and you'll get everything from cuckoos right through to professionals and everything in between. Um, so who is right in, in that thing? You know, I've got a tickly throat. Oh, you've got throat cancer. Uh, I've got a tickly throat. Uh, we'll just wash your, your mouth, out, mouth out with soapy, uh, soapy water, <laughs> salt, salt and water, you know, just to get rid of the, the, the irritation or, or whatever. You talk about a tingle in your hands. That can come from sitting on your arm for too long or it can be a sign of a heart attack or anything in between. So that is why we pay for medical professionals, isn't it? Absolutely, and and that's that should be our default every time. But getting back to uh, your particular case scenario where you were waiting a few extra days for for your results to come through, it is a concern. My my wife works in oncology, and because of COVID at this present point in time, um, the wait times for results and um, reports are getting longer and longer simply because they've had to limit the amount of staff that can be in the office, the amount of staff that can be at clinics. The amount of people coming in doesn't change, but the actual workload has, has grown exponentially. And, and they're really under the pump to get these uh, results out, and they know how important it is. But my wife gets phone calls day in, day out with people you know, literally saying, don't you know I'm dying? Mm. She works in oncology. So, yeah, of course, that's uh, one of the major concerns. Uh, and she tries to be as empathetic as, as she possibly can, but she's got to be, and, and she is a very professional, but it is a major concern for these people that are, are worried and stressed about um, what's, what's happening in their uh, bodies at the time. It's a slight tangent, but... What you're describing there is one of the many, many, many unintended consequences or unforeseen 
consequences from this pandemic. I was only just on a phone hookup to somebody else a moment ago talking about her sister in Melbourne who, due to the second lockdown, has just about had a breakdown because she looks like losing her life's work in her business. And I'm very sympathetic to both sides of that scenario that you just said. The staff cannot do any more than they can do. The circumstances have changed and they're doing their best. But I don't blame somebody who is waiting on a cancer diagnosis for nearly losing their mind with every minute that delays. I know I would. So sympathetic all round. Absolutely, Aaron. And and just before we go on, I'd like to give a big shout out to all the medical professionals, all the health staff that do and have done such a marvellous job through this whole pandemic uh, situation. They've really stepped up to the plate. They're the ones at the coalface. They're the ones that are confronting uh, this virus head on and are in its face all day, every day. And they can take that home. Yeah, we we need to give them a a great deal of thanks and praise for what they've uh, stepped up to do. It's a really timely point that you make because when we're at the height of the existential threat, when we're all worried we're going to drop in the streets, there was plenty of rounds of applause for them then, but now in some ways the mopping up is even tougher and yet – Everybody's worried about their business and their schools and quite rightly, everybody's worried about their own patch. But the thank yous have dried up for our medical friends, haven't they? Uh, Somewhat. Um, I I think there's still a few people out there, you know, really supporting them. I I go and pick my wife up from work of an afternoon and uh, I see the supportive network and the the people encouraging them. It's, It's fantastic. Uh, the thank you notes and uh, and uh, cards that are on the window at the hospital uh, to all the staff and the, especially the little kids um, that have gone and done little special projects to send in. I, I think that's uh, very encouraging. Yeah, that's put a smile on my face. That's lovely to hear. So mm. back to our original point, do you have any suggestions or coping strategies for what in the case of a COVID test can be 48 hours or in the case of some sort of uh, oncological issue or whatever can be months. Correct me if I'm wrong, I, I went looking for this and I couldn't actually confirm this, but weren't the original AIDS tests like three months or something? Yeah. Oh. Uh, could you imagine, because AIDS was effectively a death sentence when it first came, and could you imagine waiting three months for that? It just You'd lose your mind. You didn't actually know you had the disease. You were testing to see if you had it. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, you'd um, had that relationship and uh, one-night stand or, or whatever the case may be, a blood transfusion, and then going, hang on, now now I've got to wait all this time to, to hear whether I am positive or, or um, uh, neg- uh, negative. Um it must have been horrendous. Uh, and I think things have, uh, have changed somewhat. You know, um, look how quickly they're doing COVID testing, three days. Um, absolutely fantastic uh, sort of uh, speed on the on the results and things. But in regards to your, um, your foot rash that you waited three <laughs> days or four days for the result, when you're fretting, um, you need a, a good support base around you, people that understand what you're going through. My wife uh, has just had some uh, serious brain surgery done. At the end of the operation, she woke up and she was fine. Two or three days later, she she felt the symptoms come back on again. 
and it was like the operation hadn't worked. But we had to wait two or three weeks um, to find out exactly whether the brain settled down, whether um, so it was the very thin bone between the cochlea in the in the ear canal and, and the brain space. That that bone there needed to be built up. And they'd missed just a small spot um, when they put the patch in and um, they had to go in a second time. But we had to wait that two weeks and my wife was really, you know, what is going on with me? What is wrong with my uh, situation that they can't tell this, they can't tell that? <clears throat> and it was really, I think it was really good that she had a supportive network of family and friends uh, people at the oncology ward, or the, all of uh, medical experts she had at work that uh, basically talked her through the possibilities, what can and can't happen, uh, and the options that she would have going forward. It didn't make it any less stressful, but she was at least getting some feedback and some supportive uh, comments from fr- uh, family and friends. And I think that's most important, that we don't hold it in, that we don't keep it to ourselves. And quite often uh, as men, we're stalwart and we, we you know, we'll be right. And um, uh, I think of Rip when I, I uh, uh, think of things like this, you know, tough as doornails and in that regard, holding it in and, and not sharing it. I think we need to sort of stop doing that and step out and say, hey, this is my situation, this is my problem, this is what I'm worried about, what do you think? And then, you know, see those friends gather around and, and support us in, in our particular circumstances. Can you see the sheds playing a role in that process? Absolutely. We're, um, we're at the moment talking about um, shed welfare officers and we know there's a lot of sheds with a welfare officer that... Uh, Keeps an eye on who comes into the shed, who um, who hasn't been to the shed for a while. They pick up the phone, they give them a call, make sure they're all right. Invariably, they're just on a, a, a short holiday um, or, or something or going and visiting relatives and the like. But every now and again, it's, you know, someone hasn't been feeling quite right and um, they've been able to nip it in the bud and get in touch with them right at that uh, important time. And I think sheds are really good at doing that. So we're looking at putting together a welfare officer role description and uh, so on. So if there's any welfare officers in sheds out there that would like to write in and let us know what they uh, believe their job is all about, what they can and can't do, uh, what they think they should be doing and how important it is, we'd love to hear from them. So our conversations cover a whole range of topics, but very often they simmer down to a very similar conclusion, and that is a lot of what you're feeling, there's no point you telling yourself or someone else telling you not to feel it because it's completely natural. If you're worried about a result and it hasn't come through, you'd be an idiot not to be worried about it. But the only way to get through this stuff is to get support around you. And often the only way to get support around you is to put your hand in the air. And that can be the hardest thing for all of us. So... Thank goodness we live in the age that we do because plenty of people fell face down in the field and never knew what happened to them once upon a time. So there were no tests for anything. So we can be thankful for that. And we can be thankful that if you're listening to this, there's a fair chance that you've got a shed infrastructure around you that can be called on to help you through these tough times. 
Thanks as always, Stuart. Great wisdom. No worries. Thanks, Aaron. Take care, mate. Time for our Shed in the Spotlight. First up, show and tell. Let's showcase a project or product from our shed. To tell us about some of the things that are keeping them busy in the Catherine Men's Shed, we're joined by Bruce Smith. G'day, Bruce. Yeah, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. Thanks for your time on the Shed Wireless. Is there anything that's keeping you boys occupied right now? Uh, yeah, we've uh, been really well occupied all the way through. Um, so predominantly it's uh, work on the Shed itself and uh, trying to get that organised so it's the other thing that we want to do with our project. So what needs doing? We uh, actually uh, did a lot of uh, construction research on the shed, uh, going back to uh, um, in uh, November of 18, we kicked off, and basically uh, been flat out making that happen. Um, so a lot of construction work, and uh, since, since that's all closed off, we've been... Um, you know, adding to our equipment and uh, setting up the shed itself, uh, which has, you know, been a lot of work. We've uh, got our core group of blokes, which is a great group of blokes, and, uh, and uh, all got good work ethics and uh, sitting in a great effort making things happen. Do you do the odd bit and piece for the community? Yeah, we've uh, done it a few things for the community. Um, but we're looking forward to doing a lot more once we've, you know, well established and set up. But um, early on, we did uh, a retail cook-up. That was um, back, back in May and uh, 18. And uh, that was because we had a shed. And uh, it was for the Rocky Ridge Nursing Home for the residents up there. Uh, to, to try and, uh, you know, lift their life and their um, well-being and uh, everything life. Um, and we had a, we've got a member, Gavin Dale, who's actually Indigenous, and his wife, Charmaine, uh, organised it, and uh, we cooked new tiles and damper, and it was an experience of other shooters as well, with seven leading away and showing us our son. But, uh, yeah, we had all the residents out there, and, um, you know, they were quite excited, and uh, we've seen done in the traditional way, and... Uh, you know, they love less than us, and um, that was a great experience for all of us. Walk us through the process. What was involved? Yeah, it was quite good. I was out, I was cooking, I was uh, burning the, or singeing the hair off the root tiles, and the hair is so thick that it, it took, um, you know, seven, eight times sitting at back in the hot coals, burning it, flushing it. Back in again, burning it, thrashing it, and even after that many times, there was still a layer of air there. Uh, but then we wrapped uh, it up in the aluminium soil and put them in the coals and uh, had them cook. And, uh, and then we're off into the kitchen and peeling the skin off and chopping them into uh, 200ml segments, or 150 200ml segments. And uh, taking it out to the redness. And uh, it's, I, might, I might add this is no way, no, not these ones. It's uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the fat out of the, 
the roots are when you're feeling the skin and cutting and it's just like this sweet yellow sass and the fingers were actually sticking together from it. So, yeah, I didn't try one in the end, but uh, <laughs> the residents actually loved them. So, <laughs> that was good. I, I stuck with a sausage off the tartars. I thought it was supposed to be good for you, that stuff. It, it probably is, mate. It's something you look at and you just sort of say, no. <laughs> yeah, i got a rule. I won't eat anything I won't kill, and there's plenty I won't kill. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, What about for yourself and your own involvement? What do you get out of being involved with the shed? Look, uh, like I said, we've got a great sort of place. You know, there's probably, you know, uh, a real small group of chicks that go about the race a lot of the time. Guys are there every, we do Thursday and Arvo's and Saturday, uh, sorry, Sunday during the day. Uh, we're there all the time. Uh, enjoy each other's company, talk lots of crap, um, and, and do lots of work. So we work really well together and uh, sign it. So, see him a bit more but um, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's a great place to be really enjoyable and of course you get to know people around us and we've been here for probably you know, just nine or three years now seen us back and forth a few times in the past but um, you know I've met so many people from the sheds uh, which otherwise you wouldn't have I've got, I've got a good group of mates good mates and um, and, and I've seen posts on Facebook about so many people that live up here that have lived here for four years and more and they haven't got a friend and I've been sitting there, you know. So it's, it's a, a great place to bring uh, that on. What's your fantasy project? If time and money and resources weren't an issue, what would you do? What would you really love to get your teeth into? I'm really keen on uh, any uh, community-based projects where um, you know we could do something with these substantials to, to um, benefit the community. But um, you know you can get really good feedback on people that you've done something that's really worthwhile and puts uh, them in a better place. We're even looking at um, a project at the Catherine Hospital, which uh, COVID-19 sort of stops for that uh, at this stage. We, uh, we wanted to set up shade sales over an area of hospitals. It's, um, they've got actually a section of the Jack Roney world there where they've got some indigenous gardens set up, but it's in the full sun, so they can't use it. So that was a project we were keen on, which would be a pretty major project. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that comes to fruition in the future. But it's basically any community-based projects I'd be really keen on and so the other guys, as well as all the little bits and pieces. It isn't an easy place if things aren't going your way, so the sense of community is really important there. Absolutely, it's everything, and um, I think, you know, it gives you got such a good feeling yourself to be involved in those sort of projects. It's good for you, you know, as well as it's good for everyone else, so you do get a lot of benefit out of it. If we had another project um, last year where we made Christmas trees, and it was uh, the Tassin Town Council was atrocious about that, and uh, then they organised these trees to go around to the local schools uh, to hang on their fences or whatever. It also went to um, the Council of Candlelight, 
um, but we actually sent some crews up to Rocky Ridge Nursing Home and, and uh, we had regiment patients and they were the most amazing groups of things I've ever seen, you know, it was just sensational, uh, the artwork they did on them, so we're looking at uh, probably in the next couple of weeks, kick off making crews again, make a big satch of them, and that's a very good way out of uh, Salix Kimber. And uh, send them up to the residents to have activities over. It's, you know, it's pretty well for a long period that they can uh, take them in for Christmas and uh, where they want the long travel and whatever they want to do with them. Uh, it's up to them. But uh, I think it would be a good initiative. So they're just like 2D trees, are they? Almost like wall hangings made out of the pallet wood, right? Yeah, look, it's just basically a triangular shape with, you know, it's in the guard across and reducing to a point and just with it screwed onto a truss. Yeah, I know the ones um, you mean, and then they can decorate them how they like. Yes, yes. So we actually knock up a jig so we can personally mass produce them and uh, so, yeah, we can put together a high number. But I'd really like uh, that Indigenous flavour on them um, because it, it makes them very special, I think. Because there's uh, not too many natural pine trees you can go and cut down in Catherine, is there? So if you can find a few desert oaks, you get somewhat close. It's uh, nice. <laughs> Mate, lovely to meet you. Thanks for telling us about what you're up to up there. Good luck producing those Christmas trees. Thanks for being on the Shed Wireless. Yeah, thanks a lot, Aaron. Yes, we're looking forward to it, mate. Shedder in the Spotlight. Let's meet and learn about the life of one of our shedders. Our shedder in the Spotlight from Catherine is Jeff Newton. Jeff, I've heard you've been some things and you've seen some things. What do you actually put on your business card? Oh, well, I try to avoid putting much on it, so I'm trying to retire, but haven't been very successful at that point so far. <laughs> Tell but, us some uh, of the things you've done in your job. Well, I suppose I, I first came up to the Northern Territory well, 50-odd years ago, or 50 years ago, working as a jackaroo on cattle stations. And um, most of the time there were four or five hundred kilometres out of town and if something broke down or needed fixing, well, you you had to devise a way to go about fixing it. And I, I guess that background is what probably started me into being a bit of a, a jack of all trades and, and a master of none probably, but I do enjoy fiddling around with things. Um, I currently got a, a salary leatherwork business Um which is what I, I got into way back when I was about 18 or 19, working on a station where they needed some saddles repaired and I'd made a, a belt for myself and a few other little items. So the station manager thought I was the closest thing he had to a saddle maker, so I got stuck in the shed and failed to fix up about 60 saddles. So, And most, most of the other hobbies, I suppose, or interests I've got, which is woodworking, metalworking, I like blacksmithing and making knives and I just like fiddling around and having to go at pretty much anything and I think that background of having to make do and having to find ways to get things to go is probably behind that, you know, the varied interests I do have. What made you go jackarooing in the first place? Well, they, they reckon stupidity comes with old age but there's always a little bit in your youth as well. <laughs> I, um, I... 
I don't know. I just I, was, I grew up on the north coast of New South Wales. Um, everyone had ambitions of me going off to university and doing something, but I just yeah, I just wanted to get out bush and and go and get involved in the, the um, cattle industry. And so, much to everyone's dismay and horror, that's exactly what I did when I was sixteen. I came up here and um, haven't left for any great amount of time since. Were you ever tempted to? Oh, I have had a couple of a couple of short bursts where I reckon oh, I've had enough of this, enough of the territory. And but I think about ten months is the longest I've I've been outside the territory since 1972. So, what captured your imagination up there? I must have read too many westerns, or <laughs> or I don't know. I remember I remember getting a book out of the the local town library. Um, it was called. In the tracks of the cattle, written by a bloke called um, uh, what was his name, Jeff Carter, uh-huh. and it was a, a photo essay type thing of following a mob of drovers down through the Channel Country in Queensland, and maybe that had played some part. I don't know, but I always, for a long time, had an interest in doing that sort of work and came up here and really enjoyed it for quite a few years. Is it a I, hard life? Well, it, it certainly was then, and it's hard, hard enough now, but um, it's certainly a lot different to what it was when I first came up here. Describe most, those early most, days for us. Well, when I, I arrived um, at a station on the edge of the Barclay Tableland, just north of Tennant Creek, in um, at the middle of May in 1972, and I, I had two, two or three days at the homestead um, waiting till the stop camp, the, the crew of blokes, the, the mustering crew, they were coming in for a day or a couple of days off or something. And then so we went back out, went bush when they all went back to work and that was towards the end of May and we never saw the homestead again until early August. Jeez. So, and look, that was working, you know, might have got half, an, half a day off here and there in amongst it. Well, and sleeping so in was, a swag, were you, or...? Sleeping in a swag and, yeah, on a, and a lot of days we were, well, we're doing between 80 and 90 hours a week for a long period of time. Were you a horseman before you got there? Oh, no, no race horseman. I could ride. I, so I grew up on a, on a farm on, in the mountain country in northern New South Wales, so I could ride and, and um, yeah, I was a long way ahead of some of the boats I, I saw turn up there, but, well, the hours... Yeah, and just hard work all day long, I suppose, and we were watching cattle at night a fair bit of the time because we had no yards or fences to hold them up. So you do work in daylight to dark and then do another three or four hours at night watching cattle. So it was uh, – when you got a break, it was well enjoyed. Why would you stick at something like that then? There's obviously some redeeming qualities if you've been doing it for 50 years to a greater or lesser extent. What appealed to you? One thing about working in conditions like that is there's there's no room to hide. Like anyone who's got any overblown self-importance or whatever else, it you know it soon comes soon obvious to everybody, including themselves, that that's what the case is. It's a it's a great leveler, and um, and I think the friendships and whatever that I made back like, even back in the early mid 1970s. It's probably some of the strongest friendships I've still got because they were built you know, without any, no one hiding anything yet. You knew exactly what somebody was 
because you're living with them all the time, you're working with them all the time, and and any time you got a chance to play, we well, played with them, and it was normally the playing was normally as hard as what the work was. <laughs> I don't find that hard to believe. That might be a conversation for another day. Well, uh, that's right. What makes a good saddler? Oh well, someone who can either make or repair a saddle that's not going to that's good to ride in and not going to hurt horses back. It's probably they're the that's the paramount importance. Um, some people get a bit carried away thinking that the the um, the appearance of the saddle is the most important, but that, in my opinion, is you know that's a a poor third place. Hmm. Um, you've got to have the function before the before the finish, in my opinion. So we've always um, concentrated on building saddles mainly for work. We did make a few pleasure saddles. People just go for their Sunday afternoon riding, but most of what we uh, do in our business all well, all right along from when I first started in it has been aimed primarily at, at um, work saddles. Saddles are getting you know used and abused all day long, and um, they've got to be able to stand up to the hard work and also be good on the horse's back. So, and I think we've achieved that. So that's probably my greatest greatest uh, delight, I suppose, in in the business I've been doing for a long time is that we've been successful in in doing pulling off what we were trying to achieve. Because if you're spending 90 hours a week in a saddle, you can wreck a horse or a man with a bad one, can't you? <laughs> yeah, both. Yeah. But, but the, the stations, well, especially when I was working there, the stations considered the horses more important than the men. So <laughs> they didn't care if you got a saw behind or whatever, but if the horse got a saw back, well, the horse was out of commission for, you know, it could be a month or more. So, um, and we were relying totally on horses in those days. Now the horses aren't used anywhere near as much. There's a lot more, a lot more fencing. So paddocks are smaller, cattle are quieter, and um, helicopters and things like that are used a lot more extensively now. So the horses don't do the big, the big hours, big days, what they used to. Do you do much time on a horse these days? No, I can't quite remember last time I was on one. Actually, it's quite a few years, and I, I think I'd end up a bit stiff and sore if I was to get on one for any period of time now. So, what about the blacksmithing? How'd you come to that? Well, that was just something I had an interest in, I suppose, and um, I've always been interested in um, the idea of making uh, spurs, horse riding spurs, and stuff like that. And I, I think I made. My first pair of spurs in about oh, probably 1978, um, which were reasonably rudimentary, but they worked. And then I've made a couple of pairs since. And and then I, I started uh, looking to make some tools for the leatherwork, like punches and things like that, which are getting harder and harder to find because saddlery tools are, you know, they're becoming a they're becoming fairly obsolete, and most of the good um, English and American manufacturers are no longer, well, no longer going. There's, there's still a couple of places, but all the tools and things you can buy now are a lot lesser quality um, than what you used to be able to get. So I just started fiddling around and making a few tools like that for myself um, and really enjoyed it. And they, it's just a pleasure to work with something work on something you're making with tools that you've made yourself. I think it just adds another 
another level of satisfaction. I know nothing about blacksmithing, but I've spoken to a few over the years, and it's an underestimated art form as well. It's a bit like finding the perfect wave, isn't it? Each time you do something, you you do one bit a bit better and one bit not quite so well. It's a real art form to try and perfect. Oh, it definitely is, and and I think it's like wood turning. Mm. You you go into the go into the project with a conception of what you want to end up with but normally you end up with somewhere which is a slight a slight or major variance on what you originally were aiming at because you just got to when you come to something and well that didn't quite work how I wanted it to so you've just got to devise a way to, to carry on and, and still still end up with something close to what you envisage which is you know, still functional and, and visually appealing, I suppose. So. <laughs> what you said there sounds like life itself. You set off with something in mind and then you do the best with what you wind up with. Well, that's right. Yes, I don't I don't think I ever envisaged that. I just turned 65 a couple of days ago. I don't think I ever envisaged I'd be sitting there in a, a fairly large retail store with a um, manufacturing side to it and whatever doing what I'm doing at 65, but here I am. What has all that experience taught you? What does it all add up to, do you reckon? It's taught me a lot of, well, self-worth, I suppose. Hmm. I, I can look at, I can go in and do something like that, and I think, well, there are not too many men in this town who could do that, and I get a lot of, yeah, I, I, I think it's probably given me a lot more self-confidence that, um, that you can look at something and you first when you first look at something you think well I don't know how we go about this but then I just like that challenge of being able to slowly work on something you know roll around on the bench and look at it for half an hour and decide well how'd they do this and then have a go at, at trying to replicate it or or achieve what you're setting out to do and I think if you can work with your hands um, and do you know, try have a go at anything. I, you know, I do a bit of painting. I do plating. I do all sorts of things. And as I say, I, I normally persevere with things until I work out how it's done, and then, and then I, I tend to lose interest for a while and move on to something else. But it's, I think you just get a lot of self-satisfaction by making things right from the word go from scratch and um, and looking at what you've got to achieve. It mightn't be the best item you've ever seen, but. These things say, well, I made that, and it's not too bad. What does the shed bring to your world? I think the, the shed, I originally got involved in the shed when the people who were first started off come around town looking for um, business people to you know, kick a few bucks into the kitty kind of thing. And I thought, well, we're going to put money into the thing. We might as well get involved. Um, and I also thought I had a, I've got a fair bit of um, tools and machinery and stuff that I've gathered over the years which I never get the opportunity to use as much as I want to, so they're sitting idle for a fair bit of the time. And I thought, well, instead of them sitting in my shed doing nothing for 10 months of the year, if they're in the, I could move them up to the men's shed, and if I've got nothing to do them, well, someone else might have a project if they want to use a wood lathe or a bandsaw or whatever else on. So I've done that with um, some big bits of equipment, um, which have been well used in the shed. I guess we are struggling a little bit with getting our numbers up in Catherine. It's a bit of a funny funny town where a lot of people don't retire here. They 
and I suppose days like today where it's going to be 40 degrees in 1st of October is probably part of the reason. But people tend to retire and, and leave, head, you know, head down south to wherever they come from or where their kids have moved to. So we don't have a real, a big, don't have the big numbers of retired people who you know, normally gravitate to things like the men's shed and whatever in other places. So with our, a lot of our committee and a lot of our full, you know, members who are there most of the time, there's half of us are still working full time. So it makes it pretty difficult to find time to dedicate to the shed. But the times I do have there, you know, either just around a, a group of like-minded men doing things we like doing and, you know, if we can do a couple of little projects for community organisations and um, things like that, well, it's, it's just adding a little bit back into the community which we all live in. I think we should all try to do that to some extent. The boys tell me you should write a book. Would you ever do that? I've got to retire, sir. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit still to do, huh? Yeah. Anyhow, no, I don't know. I, I might have to wait till a few people die before I get it published. <laughs> you can't defame the dead, mate. You can't defame the dead. That's right. <laughs> Really good to meet you, as is so often the case when I sit down with a shedder. I could talk to you for days. I appreciate you've given us a bit of your time, and good luck fighting the good fight up there in Catherine, and stay cool this summer. Thanks, mate. Okay, thanks a lot for the opportunity. Cheers. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. Let's find out a little bit more about the Catherine Men's Shed now. What is going gangbusters? What are the challenges? And who goes to the shed? We're joined by Vice President and his many other things as well, Brian Walters. G'day. G'day. How you going, Aaron? Yeah, really well, thank you. How did Catherine Men's Shed come to be? A good while ago, there was um, one of the Catherine's Rotary members and decided they should start a, a men's shed. He'd heard about it on the, on the grapevine and through the internet, and um, he started to go with it. It um, sort of fell in a hole for a while, and there was a gentleman here that was uh, very heavily into engineering, and like by the name of Jim Batossi, and he kicked it off and started off very well until he took very quick with cancer, and that sort of put another stop to it for a while. Then back in July 17, uh, there was a bunch of us got together and decided that we'd do something about putting a shed together. So from there it kicked off. And there was a push picture uh, for being secretary. We decided he was going to be secretary whether he liked it or not. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he did a, lot, did a lot of work and saw knocking, trying to raise funds and whatnot to get us underway. The Rotary Park in, in here in Catherine was probably the best avenue and access for us to be able to use and having Rotary as a backing was a big help and so with that we went cap in hand to everybody and I could not believe the generosity of this committee amazing absolutely amazing we had people donating stuff like you wouldn't believe there was like cash flow there was wanting to buy it and give us goods there was wanting to give us everything hardware Anything, whatever we needed. So just come on board what you wouldn't believe. Why do you think that was? Why did people get behind it? You reap what you sow. Simple as that. 
um, the people that were involved have been heavily involved in the town for a long, long time. And as such, uh, the, the township wanted to give back to those people. And they had done in a tenfold amazing stuff. So I'm a bit emotional about it. We've been close. This is one thing we learn every episode of The Shed Wireless, mate, that communities are held together with a few important bits of glue and The Shed is invariably one of those important bits of glue. So tell us what it looks like today in 2020. Quite a bit of work to be done on the original structure of The Shed. So we did a lot of refurbishments and got it up and running and we picked all the best times of year right in the middle of the builder, <laughs> November, December, <laughs> 18 to put it together. <laughs> it was tough. I know your part of the world has a reputation, but it's worth just pausing and visiting this for a second. How hot does it get when you're trying to work on a shed in Catherine? Well, it's 40 degrees in the shade and about... 79 to 90% humidity most of the time. So you all must have six-pack abs, do you? Uh, not quite, no. <laughs> but you're not endowed that way. You're replacing some of that moisture maybe, mate. <laughs> we do. Um, there's a lot of water. And occasionally we call um, smoke time and have something with a little extra. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, so sorry, walk us through the shed. Okay, the shed itself is, believe it or not, it's only a nine by nine metre shed and we've put a lot of effort into trying to cram what we have got in such a small space. Um, We insulated it as we went through building it, so every bit of machinery, bar one, that we've got, we've had to refurbish and get mobile, so we had to do a bit of work on it. So that's taken up a lot of our time doing that. Um, thankfully, we've got a good bunch of expertise in MSC groups that can do all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great commitment. The shed itself looks quite new. It's, it's been electrically sound now, um, physically sound now. That helps. Um, we've added to it by putting in a couple of containers that we've modified somewhat to um, become storage. And storage with steel floors, so the white ants don't decide to eat everything they get. So we've had a bit of bother with white ants up here, I might add. Other than that, the shed itself, uh, we've done a lot of work around the outside of it as well, to tidy it all up, make it nice and easy, and easy access for both us and um, somewhat handicapped people as well. We've done a lot of work along those lines. Tell us a little bit about Catherine Township and the surrounds. Why are you there and what appeals to you about the place? I came here for two years, 30 years ago. <laughs> I'd like a dollar for every Territorian who's told me that story. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, if it sticks, it stays. Simple yeah. as that. The township itself is um, its only 10,500 people strong. They're about to a lot of it's itinerant. Um, obviously, they're a support crew for all the primary industry around, around here, around the whole district, and a central community for most of the Indigenous communities around the place as well as well as the RAF personnel for the base. Right? The RAF personnel get posted to and from, so we've got a few people that uh, are short-term members and then disappear again. Hopefully they carry on to other men's sheds from here, there and everywhere. But we tick them off pretty well. Does that make it hard having an itinerant crowd like that to really drill down deep foundations and get a good flow of floats in? Um, much, much. We don't get much of a flow, but we do get um, 
like a small group that changes in and out, but the core group is still the same. Rock solid, work hard, dedicated people. Just put the time in. What does it do for you personally, mate? Oh, well, it gets me quite emotional, obviously. Um, mate, I'm a bloke who cries in toilet roll commercials, so you, you've found your <laughs> tribe here, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well... I've been described as being vertically, vertically chummy, laterally endowed, follically chummy, aging illegitimate. <laughs> Clearly a point of passion for you, though. Oh, yeah, it is. Um, like I said, I come into the town, and the town accepted well. My first boss in the town, he said, you didn't come into town, you swept in the town, you've taken over. Well, you can't do anything else when you've got five teenage kids meeting every man and dog in the place. You get to learn and know about people very, very quickly. The old acceptance trick, you're either accepted or you're not. And I think we were accepted. And as you say, that's where the idea of you get back what you give out comes from, eh? That's it, the week, what you say. Yeah, 100%. Mate, really nice to meet you. Sounds like you're getting plenty back personally, and it's great to see that the shed is going forward. I love talking to Territorians. I love hearing about the life up there. People talk about there should be compulsory military service. I reckon everyone should have to go and do six months in the Territory after they turn 18. It might adjust a few of the focals in the big cities, I reckon. So thanks for being a part of the Shed Wireless. It's really great to meet you and the crew. Thank you very kindly, sir, and you enjoy your day. Would you like to put your Shed in the spotlight? Just contact us via email. Wireless at mensshed.net and we'll take care of the rest. You are about to meet one of Australian sports' all-time greatest who went within a whisker of winning four world championships. Jeff Fennick had 32 fights for a total of 28 wins, 21 of those by knockout, one draw and three losses. In 1985, he was named Male Athlete of the Year. In 1986, the most popular Australian sports personality. In 1987, Sports Entertainer of the Year. In 1988, Boxer of the Year. 1989, Boxer of the Decade by the WBC. And in 1993, in Las Vegas, he was named as one of the world's top 30 boxing champions of all time by the World Boxing Council. The Marrickville Mauler was a household name and his partnership with Johnny Lewis was lightning in a bottle. His famous cry, I love yous all, will live on forever in the Australian vernacular. But last year, Jeff got a very real reminder that he isn't, in fact, immortal with a terrifying heart health scare. He's about to head out and train some of Australia's next generation of talent, but he joins us now on the Shed Wireless. G'day, Jeff. Yeah, good eye. Nice to talk to all the guys listening and doing well. Uh, I know it's a tough time doing isolation, but um, it's just something that we all have to try to adapt to, and um, it hasn't been easy for me here, but I'm sure it's uh, a lot harder for you Melbournians. And so I'm thinking about you guys, uh, just stay strong, stick together, and then talk to each other, help each other out. That's something that you've always been, a communicator. You value communication, don't you? I think communication is everything. I mean, um, you know, to to be successful at anything or to, to enjoy uh, what you do and what you live, you've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to speak. Yeah, you've got to be able to, yeah, sometimes be constructive in criticism. Sometimes, you know, um, 
maybe harsh sometimes. You, you, you've got to be able to, uh, to adapt to, to the situation. I mean, the situation we're at the moment uh, needs a lot of adaptation. And uh, I think that um, yeah, we, we all need to help each other through it. It's, um, it's not easy. It hasn't been easy for anybody. And you know, I think that, um, you know, um, it's, it's a phone call, uh, you know, uh, you know, whatever you can do to, to, to make somebody feel a little better is certainly going to help at this time. When I run through that list back starting in the mid-80s through to the mid-90s, does that seem a long time ago to you or five minutes ago? Ah, no, nah, it's, it's, it's a long time. But um, for me, um, uh, it's really hard to forget because, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking engagements and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with a lot of people very regularly or you'll go somewhere and obviously somebody's going to bring something up of the past and um yeah, so it's it's constantly it's it's constantly reminded uh, to me. It's uh, it's you know as as much as sometimes I think, wow, you want to forget it all. It's, it, it'll never be forgotten. It's a part of Australian folklore. And um, look, um, I'm proud of it. I, I I know one thing that without the Australian public, without the sport of the Australian people, I would be nobody. So uh, I've had my ups and downs, but um, you know, I, I think that uh, if you can learn from your, your downs as well as your ups, you're a better person for it. And I've, I've certainly uh, you know, made mistakes in my life. I've put my hand up and um, I'll always do it. Um, I'm you know, the first to, you know, to admit when I've done something wrong and I'll, I'll try to correct it. If I can't correct it, I'll try to make um, sure people learn from my mistakes and have better people from my mistakes. Well, since we've gone there, let's talk about the negatives before we go back to the positives. When did you feel at your lowest in your life? Oh, no, there's been, been a few occasions. Been in trouble a couple of times where, I, you know, I've you know, just been in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that's uh, that's really distressing. And then I think the, the, the thing that you learn the most from those things is, you know, I'm, I'm, being, well, I'm supposed to be this big, tough guy that can handle all those things. But, you know, the, the thing that I try to teach people when I, when I, when I go out and talk and I try to educate people today is, Forget about how tough you are. You got a mum, a dad, you got brothers, you got sisters, you got family, and them. Um, you know they've got to they've got to put up with the crap that you know that that you think you can handle, but maybe a little bit more difficult for them. So I try to get people to you know, you know think before we, think before we do things. I know it's sometimes hard and we make mistakes, but um, you know if you can give yourself a little bit of extra time to think before you do something silly and uh, sit down and give yourself another 10, 20 seconds, I'm sure that. Uh, you you you'll get the right answer there, but like I said, um, you know I've done that. I mean, I've I've, you know, I've been in a in a position where I you know I've, I've, I've lost fights, so I thought I've won, and that's been pretty devastating for me. But like I said, um, in the long run, I am who I am today because of the adversities and because of the ups and downs. And I I love who I am today. I can look in the mirror every day, and my, my ultimate judge is the mirror. I can look there every day when I wake up, and I'm proud of myself. I'm proud to go outside and. Um, Sprout what I've done, or, or you know, like I said, or you know, explain, you know, if I have made a mistake, why I made, or why I was so stupid, or what the, the circumstance was. But um, like I said, and um, and without those mistakes, you know, I wouldn't be the person I am. And like I said, I think that some of the mistakes other people make, people learn from, and if they've learned from mine and made the made the, the world a better place. I'm, I'm happy for that as well. See, a lot of people try and bury their mistakes and pretend they didn't happen, but you own yours. Why do you think it's important to own the bad as well as the good? Well, if you don't, um, uh, you, you, you can't live with yourself. Like I said, um, yeah, to, to in order to move on and get on with your life, you've got to realise I've made this stupid bloody mistake and uh, you know, I've, got to, I've got to move on. I, you can't just hold and, you know, like, the, the, like the, 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 the greatest, for me, the greatest disease in the world is jealousy. I mean, um, jealousy is a disease with no cure or medication for and, um, and, and that can kill you. And, and so can stress and so can all these other things. So I just try to, to, to live every day as, um, as, as it comes and I think um, 
you know, last year I got the greatest lesson of all time. That um, had I gone to sleep and um, while I was overseas, I wouldn't have woke up. I had my friends not brought the ambulance to my room, and um, while I was in Thailand training a few young boys, and um, I wouldn't be here today. So I try to make sure that I live every day as as great as I can. I try to share and make everybody else around me live live a great uh, a great day and a great um, you know presence with me. What exactly happened to you in Thailand? Well, uh, well, I got sick. Uh, I don't know how long I would have had this thing for because people don't know, but I wasn't feeling well there. And I, um, you know, day after day, I got more listless and got weaker and weaker. And just one day, I went back to the room and the boys invited me. We had dinner together every night. This night, I definitely couldn't even get myself out of bed to go, so I just told the boys to leave. And they didn't want to leave me. They said, come on, let's take you to the doctor. I said, just please leave me. I'm, I'll be all right. Just let me go to bed. I'll wake up in the morning. It should be all right. I was you know, trying to take some antibiotics and stuff. And then the boys realised, all oh, they seen that my heart was pumping really heavily and I, I was short of breath. And then they brought the ambulance to my room. Had they not that night, and like I said, I wouldn't be here today. So like I said, I think everything in life happens for a reason. And, you know, I'm still here. Hopefully, um for a, for a reason, the reason I believe is to, to I've, I've got these amazing um, skills, I've got these amazing lessons that I'd like to, to share with the rest of Australia. And it just goes to show toughness can be an asset or a liability, can't it? When you use toughness for good, it does great things. It can win your world championship. When you use toughness poorly, it can mean turning away mates who are trying to save you. It can mean making poor decisions in your life. It really is something that needs to be channeled. Yeah, one million percent, and that's and that's what about talking to your friends, being able to see if everybody's okay, checking up on your mates, and making sure they're okay. You know, all that kind of stuff, the communication, and um, that's really important. And if I wasn't pretending to be this, well, no, I was pretending, but to be this big tough guy that day, I most likely would have went to the hospital or would have went somewhere because they they told me to go to the hospital hours and hours earlier. But I, you know, just thought that you know, yeah, I'm, I'm big and tough, I'm healthy, I'm fit, I'll, I'll get through it. And um, like I said, um, thank God and thank uh, the, the the team that they um they went above and, uh, uh, me and just thought they do what they thought was right. And like I said, they're lucky they did, or else I wouldn't be here. I mentioned your relationship with Johnny Lewis and I called it lightning in a bottle because it's not right to call it a perfect partnership or a magical relationship because it was way more complicated than that. What worked and what was hard about your relationship with Johnny? Well, I can honestly say without any doubt, without him, I don't know whether I would have been able to achieve what I achieved because I just, um, you know, um, I say that because um, I just loved him so much and whatever he told me to do, i done. And, um, you know, because I've trained other people later in my career and I've seen different things that, wow, I could, maybe I could have been better. But could I have loved the sport as much as I loved it with Johnny? I, I would never know. But like I said, um, Johnny was this kind of person who um, put all these amazing values into me and um, you know, taught me all these amazing things that I still believe in today. And there were, there were times, you know, um, you know, towards the latter part of my career when I retired, that I thought he betrayed me on all. But, um, look, um, um, you know, um, I still totally respect the man. I think that, uh, like I said, I, uh, I love the man, to be honest. But in, um, I'm very, very sure that at the moment, I'm sure a few people are here. We, we don't speak at the moment, but I can feel something. Like I said, in, in, like I told you guys earlier, in this pandemic and while all this stuff's happening, I mean, one of my... My greatest um, traits is that, like I said, um, I kept, couldn't 
care really what anybody ever done to me. Forgiveness is um, something that we all should have and we all should be able to find, and especially if it's going to make somebody else's lives better or make somebody's life better. One life's better than saving one life's better than saving none. And look, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, you know, in the near future, maybe, you know, reaching out to Johnny and, and, and trying to patch everything up and ensure that he'll be open for that. So let's just, you know, like I said, I, I never close the door on anybody. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. You, can, you know, you could do the, you know, whatever you could do to me, but if there's um, time or there's something that, that or there's a, an opportunity to forgive, I'm a pretty forgivable for, uh, person as well, you know. I really hope that happens. That would be magic for you both. You took it up at 17, boxing I'm talking about. You took it up at 17. If you took it up at 17 in the year 2020, could you still be a world champion? Hey, listen, um, I think you'd be the world champion anyway, because you've got that. I, I just, I think that I was just born to fight. Mm. I had this, um, I had this skill and ability that um, I never pursued because I never knew nothing about boxing. I'd never been to a boxing gym before. I never, I never thought of being a boxer. I always wanted to be a rugby league player. So all of a sudden, I find this, um, this other sport, and I find that I'm, you know, um, talented and I've got potential in them. Um, you know, it, it, there are a lot of people with potential in a lot of areas of their life, but it's it's how you dedicate yourself and, and you know, uh, the work you put in. And I tell everybody that, you know, whether you're a football player, whether you're a boxer, we all train a couple of hours a day, but it's those other 22 hours that defy whether you you, you, you want to be successful, you want to be the, you know, the, the, the standout. It's what you do in those other 22 hours, what time you sleep. You know, the, the, the homework you do on your own, the preparation you do on your own, what you eat. You know, all those things are, you know, are really, really important. And as an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, when I got chosen to go to the Olympics, I, I changed my life around totally. I never went out. I, I lived I lived the box. I just wanted to learn and get better and better. And I was very, very blessed that I, that I, I was able to do that. I was able to have improve every every time I fought. I thought that I was getting better. And, uh, of course, I, I'd only had, like, 28 amateur fights and, and so I was still an apprentice, but as I had every professional fight, I got better and better. And, um, yeah, was, I was very, very blessed to, to be able to achieve the goals I achieved. You must have been a good listener, though, because a lot of blokes had 10 years head start on you in terms of technique and understanding and maybe even fitness, and yet you blew past them all. You must have listened hard. Yeah, well, I didn't just listen. Every day I went home, I, I tell everybody that I that I help and that I teach in any way, shape or form that when I'd go home in the night, I'd write down everything that Johnny wanted me to do and I'd have it at my bedside and everything that I was going to do the next day was already written down by my bedside. I didn't, I didn't prepare for my day when I woke up. My day was prepared for when I went to bed so I knew exactly what I had to do. And like I said, for me, preparation is the, the key word to, to anything. If you prepare properly, it's the same as when I was going to fight for my first 16 rounds. Not only ever, ever gotten, you know, six or seven rounds prior to that and everybody, how can you do 15 rounds? Well, I've prepared. I've done it. I've done it 50 times in the gym training. I knew I could do it. Mentally, I knew I could do it. And, um, you know, as, as much as people think about physical and people talk about, oh, this guy had a big heart, everybody's heart's the same. The message, your heart don't send a message to your brain. Your brain sends a message to the rest of your body, to your heart, that yeah, if, you, if you want to do something, the, 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 it doesn't come from the heart. It's first from the head, then from the heart. The, the head gives you all the messages, and if you've done the preparation and the hard work, 
Yeah, mate, of course, and if you believe in what you're doing, you believe in yourself, you can go out there and you can do anything. You can achieve things, you know. So that's how I felt anyway. That's That was my secret. And I think that is um, you know, the, 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 the correct formula for anybody that wants to have success. Believe in yourself, go and do the hard work, and then, yeah, you, you roll your sleeves up and, yeah, if you work hard enough and you've got the ability and you've got the potential and you, you're willing to, 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 to make sacrifices, you'll be successful. Is fame hard? Because I imagine you still can't go down the shops or go to a pub with a friend and not have 100 people recognise you. Uh, yeah, look, so I'm, I'm a little different. I mean, I've beat out plenty of people that don't like it. I love it. I love it for one reason only. Like I said, that um, if I didn't love it and you know, if I was um, rude to those people who had um, who had put me on the pedestal in today, I'd I wouldn't I wouldn't be I wouldn't be one be able to look in the mirror in the morning when I woke up. If I was at a anywhere, I mean, I'd sign one autograph, I'd sign one thousand. I wouldn't leave until I'd done the last one because, um, like I said, those thousand people are the, the people who put the carpet in my house, who put the paint on my walls because they're, they, they're the people who, who helped me, um, you know, achieve and and, and, and earn the money I earned through that, through them supporting me. How different are the young blokes that you train today? to what you were or the other young fellas in the gym when you were a young fella? It's a, it's a great question. Like, well, the majority of them are completely different. First, I have one young boy. He's, um, uh, he's Brock Jarvis. Hmm. And, um, um, you know, he was brought up, although his family were very well off, he was brought up um, to, to work hard and to, to, to roll his sleeves up and know that if he was going to achieve anything, he had to work hard. His um, uncle was... Um, uh, a first grade rugby league player and played for Australia in state of origin and then um, uh, he's got these genes that from the first day he walked in the training at 16 um, I've seen a replica of Jeff Finnick um, at the <laughs> moment he's had like seven hours, uh, 17 fights, 17 wins or 16 knockouts and he's about to have a big fight against the guy out of Melbourne on the 25th of November and uh, they look at he is, um, like I said, uh, he's old school, but again, today, you see all these people, they want to do his right crap on Facebook and you know, Instagram, and you know, um, you know it's, uh, for me, it's a little disappointing, because um, um, I believe in, I let my fist do the talking, but um, the world's changed today, it's not the same anymore, like you walk into a, a restaurant where you have little, where, you, where I had my children sitting down and, you know, trying to keep them quiet eating, they, see, they, so they just give them a mobile phone, they with some games on it, and you don't hear them for a few hours. Uh, that's not how I wanted my children brought up. I wanted my children brought up out in the park, playing sport and doing teams and that. But the world's changed today. Mm. Apart from the scare that you had in Thailand, how have you come to terms with ageing? You're not an old man. 56, are you? 56 now? Yeah. Yeah, so you're not an old man, but you're not 21 either. How have you faced ageing? Well, the hardest thing for me at the moment is I'm like, boss. I still think I'm 20, and that, that might sound silly, but I still get on the bike and I still try to beat times I was I was doing like, um, you know, 15 years ago and prior to my heart attack or prior to my heart um, surgery. And um, I, I keep thinking as I'm on that bike because I have a pit valve inside my thing. I keep thinking every time I'm, geez, I hope he's 60. I don't want to swear, but I hope his damn buddy pig was stronger than he can keep up with what I'm doing because I keep thinking. This pig, I'm going to make this pig take another heart attack. And, uh, so, yeah, I find it really hard because I, I always try to push myself. Like, for instance, I'm doing like um, uh, the other day, I did like 22K in um, just just under 30 minutes, which is like doing like that. It's maybe doing a, a one minute 20 kilometer, you know. So I did that for 20Ks. I think I can do that for 30. So 
yeah, I push myself pretty hard, you know. Why? Why does it matter to keep pushing for I excellence? Know. I don't know. It's it, well, I, I do know. It's it's, it's called ego, Sam. You know, yeah. and I, that, that's a part of what made me successful. And um, you know, sometimes I think this is this ego going to be the end of me. But who knows? If it is, it's a good way to go because that's that's what made me who I was. But yeah, I find it hard to. I find it hard. Because I, 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 I got my beautiful gym at home. I'll sit on the bike and my indoor bike. I mean, I'm just going to do it. You know, I'll do 20, 20k in the 35 foot. You know, I can't do it. Once I start, I've got to try to beat 26 or 27 minutes because I know that's my best time. And yeah, so, you know, uh, a little crazy doing that. But like I said, um, uh, what's meant to be is meant to be. How much harder is it to train somebody and have them go out in the ring? Than it is to go out there yourself. When I done it, I loved it. I was, uh, you know, um, when you got somebody else and you 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 love them and you care about them, you, you, there's unexpected. They can get knocked out. The career can be over. So it's harder. It's much, it's much much harder. But um, and the hardest thing is that that I learned over the last you know twenty years or so. It's that everybody's an individual, so yeah, everybody can't do what Jeff Fenny done or whatever anybody else done. So I. I, I, I train and prepare everybody. I teach them as an individual. I you know, make sure that they've got the basic skills and if they've got something special, we'll work on that and yeah, we'll work on lots of lots of different things. And like I said, um, for me, yeah, um, I try to make sure that, like I said, everybody that comes into my gym, I, 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 I treat them as whoever he may be, whether it's Brock Jarvis, Hassan, Jack Brubaker, Terry Mollett, Oh, whoever, whoever's in there, I just train them um, the way I think they need to be trained. I, I don't train them all the same. We, 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 I try to mix it up and, and, and make sure, yeah, that they're enjoying what they're doing, yeah. I read recently a bit of a storm on Twitter where somebody high profile said, that's it, enough's enough. Boxing is a barbaric sport. We now live in a civilised age. It's time to put a pin in this sport. Why does boxing still have a place in the world, in your opinion? You know, it's the it's the pure sport. It's um, it's what what two men, um, you know, um, go out to achieve. I mean, as a kid, you you remember there was a fight at school. The whole school went to watch the two guys fight. It's the, it's the excitement. It's, it's the thrill of the fight. It's two people. You know, I'm trying to you know to prove you know, who's the best. I mean, the, the the saddest thing today is that because there are so many um different organisations and, and so on and there's so many mismatches where somebody that's had, you know, an amazing quiz fighting somebody who can't fight and that is dangerous and it needs to be addressed and fixed and, and we, all, we all talk about that but like I said, at the end of the day um, every sport that's ever been on TV nothing beats the World Heavyweight Championship or Floyd versus Mayweather or Floyd versus McGregor. When people will go out and, and challenge and, and put their Everything on the line. It's um, they're, they're, you know, um, people want to watch it. People love to watch two men fight. And um, yeah, boxing is the pure sport of it. It's the oldest sport and it's, it's pure. And um, I mean, uh, yeah, like I said, like I, said I, I look at it today too, and I look at some of the things that happen to people after the sport. But uh, that happens to everybody in life, and we've got to just try to make sure that me as a trainer, me as somebody who's involved in the sport with a voice, is trying to make it and um, safer and make it um, better. A better sport, and um, yeah, that, that's all you can do because it's never going to go anywhere. Whether it's banned or whether it's not banned or that's allowed, boxing will always be. Whether it goes underground or behind doors where nobody knows, so it's better to have it 
and you know, out there and police properly and, and, and try it there to, to make it the best it can be. If you had a grandson who said he wanted to be a boxer, would you take him to the PCYC? I've had a son. I've never had who, who doesn't box. Um, listen, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll teach him. Um, I'll teach him to box without any doubt. I'd let him know if I had a granddaughter or my daughters. I'd teach my <laughs> fair my, point. My daughters, uh, yeah, you know, I teach. You know, in this day and age, I think that everybody should learn self defence. Everybody, you know, and I think, um, uh, you know, in, in in a world where now we always talk about people getting bullied and so on, it's great that you. You have a, a son or a daughter or a granddaughter or whatever it may be that if you know, something happened that, that they look have to, they don't have to punch anybody but they, they've got the confidence where they can stand up for themselves and you know and look after themselves. I think it's very very important in this day and age. You know, I think like I said, um, yeah, in this day and age, you can be walking down the street and you, you never know what's going to happen. So it's great to it's great to be fit, it's great to be prepared, and it's great to to know some form of self defence. Get in a time machine and go back to the age of 17. Imagine you busted your hand up badly or took a bad hit to the jaw and professional sport was off the table for you. You were never going to be a world champion, whatever. What do you reckon you might have done for a job? I did an apprenticeship as a bricklayer when I finished school. And did you like I mean, it? No, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. It was a challenge for me because I was this little kid who weighed like 40 odd kilos and I was, you know, an apprentice taking bricks around, putting the cement out for the big guys. Yeah, I loved it. It was a, it was a challenge for me. I've always loved the challenge. But like I said, um, who knows? In the neighborhood that I grew up, um, who knows what would have happened? I just, like I said, I'm very, very blessed that I went to the youth club and um, was introduced to some amazing policemen there that um, you know, showed heaps of time and respect for everybody. And then I met Johnny Lewis and then. Um, and my life changed, and um, you know, I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that. You know, and um, that's why I think that my story is so unique. And at the moment, John Jarrett's been here for the last four or five months, um, doing my life story. And hopefully, um, you know, in the next year or so, it'll be out there, and people will um, will see you know something about um, a little more about Jeff Finney. Because, like I said, I'm one of these guys. Um, who I've, I've never had a drug in my life. I've never had a smoke in my life. I've never had a coffee in my life. You know, and people ask me, Jeff, you've been. I've been around people that have done that. You know, not that they do it in front of me or fraud in front of me, but I know that people do it. But it's just something that I, I just don't believe in. So, um, you know, if I don't believe in something, I just I, I just don't participate. Like I said, I've been at functions and stuff where people say, oh, let's go upstairs. We'll walk upstairs and all of a sudden, if they're doing drugs, well, well, not, we, just, we just immediately about face, we leave. It's just, you know, no disrespect to anybody else. It's just what we do. We don't, you know, have a glass of wine, no problem. Have a, have a bottle of wine, no problem. But, you know, just, you know there are just some things that I, that I, I, don't, I don't participate in. I don't cross the line for. Like I said, I'm, I'm very, very proud of it. I've been, like, I've been overseas with Mike Tyson. I've been, you know, in, in, in places where, um, yeah, I could have the, the time of my life, but people are using drugs and I'll just leave. I just get up and I leave. It's just not where, where I am, the, 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 you know, the places I want to be. It's just, you know, I'm very, very strong and self opinionated and I just do what I believe in and uh, that's it. I'm, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm not going to say something or practice if I don't preach. If I preach it, I'm going to practice it and that's just, what I've been brought up to, to by my father to learn. Tyson's got himself back in shape, I saw. Yeah, he has. It was a, it's a pity because just before this all started, the pandemic, I was over there with him and, um, yeah, he asked me to, to help him prepare for what he's doing now and, uh, yeah, see, I, I haven't never been able to get back there. But, yeah, I've been in contact with him and he looks great. 
Fantastic. And you are looking great as well. Look after that pig's heart, won't you? Go hard, but not too hard. And uh, now, yeah, I'm, well, I'm just about to go and give him another test. I'm going to head back out on the bike now. I've spoken. I've got a bit of a. So I'm going to head back out there. Well, I have very fond memories. I'm a little bit younger than you, and I have fond memories of my grandfather, my father, and I sitting down and watching your fights and cheering for you. You're a part of my memory and my lifetime, and it's been a real honour to have had the chance to talk to you today and to have you address all of our shedders across Australia and around the world. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much. And like I said, um, stay positive and uh, yeah, enjoy your life to the fullest, guys. Go and enjoy it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. We rip chip. Today, Shadows Rip Woodchip here. How are you all going today? I've just been out wetting a line trying to catch a feed for the missus tonight. She loves a good feed of seafood, that's for sure. And I don't mind going and doing the shopping for it either. Yeah, not a worry in the world out there in the middle of the lake. Up in the time I forgot to put the bungs in, of course. That could have ended really badly. Nah, fishing is a test of patience and a good way to clear your head too, I reckon. It's where I do some of me best thinking and some of me no thinking at all at the same time. You see, I've been waiting on a few results from the test the doc took last week because I haven't been feeling 100%. And at my age, it's always a long wait for things like that. And the waiting is the hardest part. I reckon I've dodged a few bullets in me time, and you never know when one's going to get you. But, as I've learned over me many years, there's no sense in worrying about it. Worrying doesn't seem to solve anything. In fact, it just makes it worse. And I sure have wasted some hours over the years stressing over stuff that just wasn't worth the worry, that's for sure. I used to lay awake in bed all night, worrying about everything and anything. And if I didn't have anything to worry about, I'd worry that something was going to happen. Bloody stupid. And it always seems to be worse at night. What's the go with that? Yeah, if stress burnt calories, I could have been a supermodel back then. But it's just experience that teaches you that even some of the worst things that can happen usually don't. And rarely are they as bad as we imagine. I used to say to my kids all the time, that as long as the sun comes up every day, everything's going to be alright. And if it doesn't come up, we're all stuffed. So don't worry about it. But the mind is a funny old piece of machinery, alright? You can tell it one thing that just does exactly the opposite. Like, if I told you to not think about a monkey riding a bicycle in a tutu, what's the first thing you think about? Exactly. And we always seem to think of the worst possible scenario too. It's like there was this time me mate Chip found a spot in his arm and by crikey the next thing he's picking out coffins and getting all his affairs in order until he realised it was just a flick of paint from when he was staying in the deck on the weekend. And it just come off with a bit of spit and a hanky, the bloody goose. But saying that, not worrying can lead to complacency too. Like me other mate, Skip, hated going to the doctor. Just didn't want to know about it. Ignorance was bliss, until that annoying little tickle in his throat turned out to be throat cancer. Didn't even live to see his 60th. So there is a fine line there somewhere, fellas. And I've been through enough now to know that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And you can't control the wind, so just adjust your sails a bit and keep on moving. So now, I just take everything in me stride and go fishing. And when life throws me a lemon, I squeeze it on a couple of them flathead fillets and wash it down with a cold one. 
Anyway, fellas, I'm going to go clean the boat and polish me hooks. Catch you next week, fellas. Remember, stress less. Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. Everyone has a crappy day, right? It can happen to men or women, and it can happen at any age. Sometimes it happens for a really good reason. Sometimes it happens for no apparent reason. But as we're encouraged to think more and more about our mental health, because a healthy mind usually means a happier life, how do we work out what is just a crappy day and what is something a little more serious and requiring attention? How do we stay on top of our mental health to make sure we're in the best shape that we can be? Well, that's one to ask the doc. And Professor Rob McLaughlin AM is with us. He is a director at Healthy Mail, among many other things, including our Shed Wireless doctor in the house. Hello, Rob. Good day there, Aaron. Well, we are joined once again by Professor Suzanne Chambers AO, Dean of the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Hello. Welcome back to the Shed Wireless. Hi, Aaron. It's great to be back. And hello, Rob. Good day there. Suzanne, how are you going today? Excellent. It's very nice to be joining you and talking about men's mental health, which is something very dear to my heart. Indeed, and something that you have largely devoted your life to. Can I go with that simple idea, first of all? When we age, one of the downsides of being on the planet for longer is certain things will go away from us. For example, one's wife might die and to wake up the day after your wife dies and be anything other than utterly despairingly sad would be unnatural and I would say unhealthy. But there are other days when you get up and feel despairingly sad or just inexplicably angry or any number of other negative emotions and there isn't necessarily a trigger for those. So how do we balance this idea of being gentle on ourselves and knowing that there are good days and bad but also staying on top of our mental health so that we don't become habitually negative or sad. So I think what you raise is a good point, and that is being sad and sometimes terribly, terribly sad is part of life. If we didn't have changes in the way we were feeling, we're not really taking any notice of what's going on around us. And and so there can be things that happen in our own lives that lead to feelings of sadness or just feeling sad when we see things happening around us in our environment. And, you know, the current pandemic is a great example of it would be really weird if people weren't feeling unsettled and anxious about what's happening in the world right now because the world is is changed in a way that we could never have imagined. So I think it's we do ourselves a real um, bad job in a sense if we imagine that we've got to be happy all the time that's just not realistic and it's and I don't to be honest think it's normal because it's normal when a bad thing happens or a difficult things happen to feel sad and sometimes we can feel sad for no reason that we're aware of what I want to throw in here though is to say that it's important to understand that uh, men often uh, experience and express feeling sad differently than do women and so um, and men have their own particular ways of approaching the world and there is nothing wrong with that Um, so sometimes men will tend to avoid expressing difficulties when that happens and that's that's 
and be more stoic and that's perfectly fine except if it gets to the point where you're feeling down too much. Uh, feeling sort of hopeless or helpless about the future, then that's a problem. I have a strong negative reaction to the, the thing in society that says every, everybody's got to behave in a certain way. There's nothing wrong with being stoic and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be self-resilient and all those things we think of as traditional male values. They're only a problem for you if they get in the way of you looking for help when you might need it. I just want to pause on that point for a moment, Suzanne, because I think it's really important because I occasionally get in discussions, in conversations with shedders, older men who say, oh, geez, do we have to talk about everything? Does our heart have to be on our sleeve? Am I only human if I cry on somebody's shoulder every other day? Can't we just get on with it? Uh, Again, (laughs) that's an interesting balance to strike. And I don't have a lot of appetite for crying on shoulders a lot of the time myself. People don't have to all react the same way. And the way I have always worked with men is in my work which has been mostly in prostate cancer is to say self-reliance is a real strength so how do we help you if you're not if you feel like you're not doing so well how do we help you use self-reliance as a strength for you to get whatever um, help you might need Um, sticking with your mates is a strength caring about your mates how do we use mateship as a strength for you so how do we use stoicism how can stoicism be good for you it's just important to see these things I think in a positive way and then see how we can flip them around so that self-reliance can actually mean when I think I'm in trouble and I need some help I'm going to go and get it for myself Um, mateship can mean when I think something's getting me down I'm going to talk to one of my trusted mates about it Uh, but doing it in a way that's comfortable and normal for you it really is when you know you ask the question about when is it when is being sad a problem? It, the quest, the answer to that really is if feeling really sad or really angry or really downhearted goes on too long, uh, when it starts to, that's when it starts to become a problem. Or if you're feeling hopeless or helpless about the future for a long time, or having thoughts of self-harm, that's when you need to go. Okay, I'm going to take control of this situation for myself, and I'm going to go and talk. Usually, I think the GP is a great first base for that because we've all got a GP, we can find them, um, and we can go and see them and go. You know what? I've been feeling this way for this long. What do you think? And then work with the GP or whoever you're talking to to. Try try and get to the bottom of what might be behind this and from then make a plan, make an action plan that you can move forward with and do something about it. So it sounds like this theme is emerging strongly again, the idea of thinking about how you're thinking about something. Because if you've been around for a while, you tend to have some shortcuts as to how you approach various issues and they've probably served you pretty well for a long time. But the way you're approaching it still needs analysis, doesn't it? You still need to think about, am I doing this in the best way possible as opposed to the most familiar way possible? That's right. I mean, often I'll say to people, think about this as your your body, your mind and your physical well-being are kind of like a network. So 
there are feelings you can have where you might be sad or angry or anxious or irritable and there might be physical symptoms that go with that like feeling tired or not sleeping well or feeling you know stomach upsets or physically unwell there might be behaviors that you're doing like withdrawing or drinking more um, that are feel like they're alleviating the problem in the short term but you wake up the next morning and you feel it's still not feeling great and then there are the there's the thinking that you have, the thoughts that you're having, and they all connect with each other. So when I work with people about how are we going to get you to the point where you're feeling okay about how you're traveling, let's look at how you're thinking and is that helping you? Let's look at the behaviors that you're doing. Are they helping you? And then if we can get to work on those two things, you find that the feelings and the physical symptoms will often start to subside. This goes to a point that you've made in the past, Rob, this idea that, yeah, okay, being stoic is good and even a degree of keeping your emotions under control in order to function is a a nice idea, but if you squash things down too hard, they can start turning up in physical problems. Yes. Yeah, look, I'm I'm very uh, attracted to the the notion, Suzanne mentioned, that that part of of being self-reliant includes that understanding of when you need to ask for help. Uh, it's it's not self-reliance to the exclusion of asking for help. It's it's recognizing that the depth or length or of your negative mood is you know, outside outside that which you can cope with yourself and, and help ought to be sought. So uh, I, I, I think that's really very important. You can be self-reliant, but you can still ask for help when you need it. Yeah, that's a powerful idea because, uh, for example, Suzanne, you might enjoy tinkering in your car, but you're unlikely to be able to do a wheel alignment in the back shed. So you take it to somebody who has some expertise in that regard. So that doesn't make you less of a mechanic or less of a car enthusiast. It just means you've called on some expertise. That's right. And it's it's an action-oriented way of doing things. I mean, as a generalization, and I know that you're not supposed to make generalization or build into stereotypes, but it it is the case that men tend to, in coping with things, be action-oriented and have a problem-solving approach. And so what I would say is that, you know, if you think of your body as a car and maybe the engine is the beating heart, um, you need to maintain that car and you need to look after it. And if the spanner is not working for the particular problem that you've addressed, maybe a different tool is needed and maybe you even do need a specialist mechanic. So it's really just taking an action-oriented, problem-focused approach and saying, you know what, you get one life, I want it to be the best it can be, and if I don't feel like I'm travelling as well as I should, then I'm going to take some action and get someone to help me with that. Rob, are we getting any better at this culturally? Oh... One would like to think so. Where I, I think that there's more uh, groundswell interest in, in mental health, more facilities available, more numbers to call, more people to approach, and the doors are always open. I'm concerned, but Suzanne would be the expert on this, that there is still, a, if you like, a recalcitrant group of, of guys who just can't bring themselves to open any of those doors and make those calls. And uh, I don't know how you measure that and uh, how, how to make that different. Uh, I'd have to pass that to Suzanne. Imagine being in a men's shed and one of your mates came to you and said, I'm struggling. I find it very hard to imagine any environment in the shed across Australia where people wouldn't put their shoulder to the wheel to help that person, right? I think we've moved to that space. 
The problem is that person coming and speaking in the first place. That's where the cultural block is. Do you have a response to that? Well, look, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, men's sheds are fantastic things because it's it's an environment that promotes mateship and camaraderie and an opportunity to not feel alone. And because I think loneliness is one of the most difficult things that we get. There's more and more people on this earth and I just feel like often people are more lonely than they ever were. So this is, again, being proactive. Get yourself in an environment like a men's shed where there are other men and where you can just and you don't need to talk about it necessarily, just might make something together. It's that feeling of being with someone else and looking out for your mates. So maybe your mates aren't going to sing out to you when they're in trouble, but keeping an eye on them. You know, are they more withdrawn than they used to be? Are they more irritable? What signs can you pick up that maybe this person just needs a bit of extra talking, a bit of extra comfort from you? in whatever way is appropriate. But I think we are shifting. What I see is um, many men more likely to talk about the difficulties they experience, but there still is a problem with avoidance is a of emotional, mental health problems is, it, is there. We need to work to overcome that because there's something I want to pick up that I think Rob said earlier. If you push something down and you suppress it and you avoid it, you actually make it stronger in the end. So it's kind of, they say, picture an elephant and then go, don't think of the elephant, don't think of the elephant. You can't stop (laughs) thinking of the elephant once you tell yourself not to do it. Well, it's true about negative thoughts. You get a negative thought about something that's potentially quite unrealistic and is never going to happen. So you try and avoid, I'm not going to think about that, I'm not going to think about that, and that just makes that thought even stronger. So there are strategies that you can learn, and you can teach these yourselves, the self-help materials that you can use to become aware when you're doing that and learn strategies to stop yourself ruminating on these things and just learn to sit with them and understand that in the end, it's just a thought. That is a powerful thought. The action that follows that is far more challenging than the idea it has to be said. This has been another brilliant chat. And uh, Suzanne, we would like to invite you back to engage further because this is such a rich topic. And quite frankly, our entire quality of life is tied up in how well we handle this stuff. So would you come back and join us again? I'd be delighted. That is Professor Suzanne Chambers-AO, Dean of the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Rob, you never let us down. You've got quite the uh, Avengers Assemble team and you bring your your mates to the fore. Uh, Thank you for bringing Suzanne into our world and thanks for your expertise on Ask the Doc again this episode. My pleasure and any time. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to mailhealth.org.au. Everything you hear on The Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. We've pulled the door closed on this episode of The Shed Wireless, but thanks to everybody who has been in touch at the Shed Wireless at menshed.net. That is our email. Shout out to Bob and our friends at Sunraysia Men's Shed. He writes, thank you, Aaron. It's been a breath of fresh air during our lockdown in Victoria. We are at Sunraysia Men's Shed and we're going to be in contact when we're finally in harness again sooner than later, hopefully. Kind regards. Yes, hello to Bob. And um, I've uh, 
been up to the Sunraiser shed a couple of times, and it's a brilliant shed. It's a very large shed and um, in terms of size, but also its membership, and they do a brilliant job up there. Um, and they've got a great relationship with the local TAFE. Gorgeous part of the world too, post-drought, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. Yep, it is, it is. Yeah, no, 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 it's a, it's a great shed and a great bunch of blokes. So uh, I remember um, we went up there for a function and um, they uh, they took us out on the um, on one of the paddle boats on the Murray. So oh. uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great Great experience. So, good day to everybody at the Sunraiser Shed. Don't forget, Shedders, that um, October 19, uh, the fact sheet for the um, National Shed Development Program uh, will be available and uh, applications open from that date. So, have a look at that because there's been a couple of changes. Uh, the government have made a few changes to the categories, etc. So, go have a look at that and um, you've got to be in it to win it. So, get your application in. And Liz at AMSA can certainly um, assist you with your application. There's really good information on the Men's Shed online all the time. Facebook is really worth following. I know that's a mixed blessing to many of you. And I can tell you, if you do get an email in the inbox, the AMSA team never, ever send anything that they don't think that you really need to know. They don't send those emails lightly because they're aware that we all get spammed with all sorts of things. So please open it and read it. And I think it might have got mentioned in dispatches at some point in one of those mail-outs, the Shed Wireless has debuted, as Molly Meldrum would say, with a bullet at number 16 in Feedspot's list of top 50 Australian podcasts you must follow in 2020. That's a good result for a fledgling podcast, Paul. Uh, Most definitely, Aaron. And look, uh, thank you to you. Uh, for all the work and your initiative uh, behind this. It's a uh, fantastic program. And, and to see that recognised, um, you know, number 16 out of 50, that is that is brilliant. And I think it just goes to show there, uh, there are some who think that uh, those in the, shed, in the shed world are elderly and not techno- technologically um, savvy, but uh, I think that disproves it because um, I know that uh, I know many shedders um, who are quite adept at um, handling, uh, you know, the internet, Facebook, and uh, listening to podcasts. So uh, that, that that is really um, affirming information that what AMSA has done um, with the introduction of the shed wireless that um, it's really found its uh, found its groove there, so to speak. Hundred percent, and I want to say thank you to the listeners, obviously, but yep. also our evangelists, as I call them. There's there's always one bloke in the group who knows exactly what he's doing, and he legs up the others. So we really appreciate everyone who has stepped up and made that happen. And might I say, it's very often a daughter-in-law or a grandchild or whatever who's doing that job as well. So shout out to them. Thanks to Jeff Fennick and Scott Kennedy and his management team at Talking Talents, to Catherine Menshed for being our Shed in the Spotlight, Professor Rob McLaughlin and Professor Suzanne Chambers, AO, Stuart, Rip, David Helmers, Helen Clare and the whole AMSA team and our ever-growing band of listeners and aforementioned evangelists who are spreading the word about the Shed Wireless. And to you, Chairman Paul Sladden, thank you. No worries. Thank you, Aaron. Stay safe. Stay sane, everybody. See you next episode. The Shed Wireless is available via some community radio stations. 
Contact your local station to find out when you can hear us. If they don't have the show, put them in touch and we'll help them out. You can also find The Shed Wireless in Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Red Circle or just Google us. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you. Giving a rating or review helps others to find us more easily. But most of all, please share us with your mates, even if they've never seen a shed, through email, newsletters, word of mouth. Ring a mate and give him the tip. Maybe your wife might even like it. We love your email correspondence to theshedwireless at mensshed.net or just head to the AMSA website, www.menshed.org and see what's going on with The Shed online while you're there. It's also a great way to connect with a range of resources, websites and national helplines, including Beyond Blue. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 78 99. Thanks for listening to The Shed Wireless, the wireless you'd listen to if you were in the shed. Mm-hmm.